most scientists don't really think about the, the, the metaphors they're using. They just use them. People said that the brain works by hydraulics or the brain's like a telephone exchange or it's like a computer, which is the current model we work with. And they shape, but eventually come to limit what we can imagine, what we can think about how the brain works. And therefore, if in the past we've used technology and it's shaped our understanding, what's going to happen in the future? At the moment, there's this tidal wave of data coming from imaging studies of the brain, from studies of the electrical activity of the brain, and that information is very difficult to integrate. And so people are saying, look, we, we, we don't have a theory. We, it's not good enough to say the brain is like mm. a computer. We need something more complex. Right. Welcome to the Earth Ideas podcast interviews with academics, scientists, and journalists about their areas of research. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review this episode if you found it valuable. And you can also support me with caffeine to keep them coming through my Buy Me A Coffee link. Smell research is only really a part of what you do, right? You have this whole other persona that um, <laughs> you're a historian of science as well. You know, you're interested in how do we know things? How did we get to knowing these things? Why did we investigate and go down certain routes to figure stuff out? I mean, um, yeah, looking through your sort of roster of work is uh, is really cool. Um, and you just brought out two books at the same time. Um, yeah, it wasn't the best time. Why? One was a one was a smell uh, yeah, book, so and one, one was is, a one is called a smell. A very short introduction. It's one of those Oxford University Press very short introductions. Uh, mm -hmm. There are hundreds of them on all sorts of different topics, and if you want to know basic information about any topic, virtually this to do with science, it's mainly science, but not only. Mm -hmm. uh, my advice is to go and have a look at one of them. It's better than Wikipedia. Uh, and yeah, they're nice little books. They're about eight, nine quid. So I brought that out on uh, Sense of Smell. Mm. Uh, and then I brought a very, published a very big book uh, <laughs> called The Idea of the Brain, uh, which is uh, a history of, uh, well, not only a history, it's divided into three halves. Well, two halves mm. and then a final bit, uh, mm. past, present and future. So it deals mm. with how ideas about the brain have changed over time, what we currently think the models that we're using and um, a kind of very speculative bit at the front at the end mm. uh, mm. saying what I think is going to happen in the future and the key thing about it is that it's linking our ideas with technology because that's what's happened people have said the brains works by hydraulics or the brains like a telegraph system or it's like a telephone exchange or it's like a computer which is the current model we work with Mm. And these are technically metaphors uh, and they shape, but eventually come to limit what we can imagine, what we can think about uh, how the brain works. So mm. that's one of the things I've been exploring. It's not simply a set of discoveries, but it's also the, the ideas that people have had about how nervous systems function, about what the brain is doing. And therefore, if, in the past we've used technology and it's shaped our understanding what's going to happen in the future what's going to happen when technology changes how will our current understanding alter 
because Absolutely. what sometimes happens is not simply that you know is old 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 findings are now reinterpreted in the light of the new model or metaphor that we developed so it's not that we're going to throw everything away but rather the way we look at things at the moment will then alter in the future mm. and when i mean most scientists don't really think about the the, the metaphors they're using they just use them uh <laughs> they don't even think about whether they're quite old-fashioned so i saw in one of uh, a couple of years ago, an article in a, a leading neuroscience journal talked about the brain being like a telephone exchange, which is a metaphor that dates back to about 1880. And most people like you, I guess, don't actually know what that means. <laughs> um, <laughs> telephone no. exchanges don't work in the way they used to. They used to work mm. by people putting... Oh, the, yeah, you go. the women with the wires. Yes, okay. Yeah, so it generally was a woman. It's an interesting kind of job that... So the key point was that it was flexible, unlike mm. the telegraph, where a message just goes between two points. Mm -hmm. In the telephone, the message could then be distributed in different places because you'd ask for one number or another, or it could even be sent on to a different exchange and then eventually you'd get through to your number. So mm -hmm. what this scientist was getting at was the flexibility of the telephone exchange. But I was just right. struck, this is an amazingly old metaphor that he's thrown <laughs> out there. Uh, not really the one that I was expecting. So yeah. what will happen when you, when you talk to scientists and you explain to them, look, your way of thinking is, yes, it's a framework, but a framework can be a cage, can mm. limit you. You can't literally, it's not a box, but you can't think outside the frame. Mm, mm. Yes, get exactly. Because they say, okay, that's amazing. So what, what's the future going to be like? What, what, what's it going to be? What's the <laughs> big thing to which I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> if I knew that, I'd be very rich. <laughs> you would have but sold millions know where, of copies. All you can it, say is that it will change in the future. Yeah, because as we develop more complicated things, we are able to sort of... And, and we learn more about what the brain can do. We were able to sort of say, oh, well, you know, it works in this sort of like complicated, multifaceted way. Um, and you said like now we sort of talk about um, the brain as a computer and we also talk about things that don't actually have brains as having like, oh, well, that's its computer. That's its brain. Sort of we, it yeah. goes both ways. Right. Um, but I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think that that is... Um, a good uh, metaphor for it. It, it because computers they're great but I mean the sort of most interesting thing that we have at the moment is the internet right that's what makes computers really interesting and that works a very very different way is, yeah there is that was a, a brief a brief mode in science for talking about the brain as being like cloud computing or something it didn't last it lasted a couple of years and people thought well doesn't actually help us mm. uh, so that they tend not to think about that because uh, one of the things about the internet and the way it was designed you gotta remember the internet was designed in america by the american military mm. and the idea is that it could any of the nodes by which all the computers are connected could be destroyed by a nuclear attack this is their thinking and the whole system would still function now there is an element of that in your brain but clearly we can see from uh, traumatic brain injury or stroke that there is also some localization of function that is if you have a stroke on a particular on the, in this part of your brain then you're very mm. likely to lose your ability to speak so mm. there is localization of function one of the odd things is that it's also distributed so that i guess the brain is somewhere in between a, a or the best way we've got of thinking about it at the moment let's say that mm. 
is mm. somewhere in between a computer with its uh, ability to process information mm. and then this kind of distributed but also localized aspects of of cloud computing and and, and the internet um i mean the key point is this has been incredibly productive so this metaphor of the brain is like a computer or initially in fact the computer is like a brain that's the fascinating thing this came about in the 1940s 1950s and the first digital computers were designed on the basis of a particular theory that was developed about how nervous systems function they don't function that function that way but <laughs> neuroscientists came up with this model for how neurons were connected together arguing that such a network would be able to process basic logical uh arguments like and if not oh. or anybody who's done any, any computing will recognize these as options you know if this then mm. i do that mm -hmm. and they argued that this was how the nervous system was built and john von neumann i mean most of your listeners will probably have heard of uh, alan turing mm. but turing whilst he was very important and i'm from manchester so i'm happy to big him up <laughs> um, the devices that the devices that we're all using are not Turing devices. They're all built on an architecture which was developed by a man called John von Neumann, who was a physicist mm. in America. And he develops the digital computer. And his starting point, when in 1945, he said to the American government, right, give me a load of money. I'm going to build you a, a supercomputer. Yeah. His starting point is I'm going to build it like a nervous system. So at the start, initially, the computer was like a brain. <laughs> that didn't last very long because he realized that, in fact, brains aren't wired up like that. But that was his mm. inspiration. So uh, in these kind of like, there's, there's these attempts at biomimicry where we sort of try and take inspiration from what is happening out in nature and invent something from it. Sometimes we get it wrong and then just invent something completely new and it still works yeah i mean it was wrong but right <laughs> and yeah. the, the proof is what we're doing now we wouldn't be able to have done that without von neumann having this this idea yeah. so yeah. I, from the 1950s onwards we thought of the brain as being like a computer and mm. uh i mean the, the 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 power of that metaphor is undeniable because that's 70 years of you know hundreds of thousands of researchers of an incredible insight um but what's clear is that at the moment there's this people often refer to it as a tsunami or a tidal wave of data coming from uh, imaging studies of the brain from studies of the electrical activity of the brain or from what are called connectomes so you're working out the the wiring diagram Ooh. of the brain and those that information is very difficult to integrate and so people are saying, look, we, we, we don't have a theory. We, it's not good enough to say the brain is like a computer. We mm. need something more complex. Right, so, so at the moment, there's a, a lot of talk in the journals that we're kind of stuck. We're getting to the end. That, that, that's my sense, is that we're pushing against the limits of this metaphor because mm -hmm. the technology can't help us anymore. Mm -hmm. It may be that we just need a new theory. Uh, past experience would suggest that that is likely to come from technology but it might not it might just come from some very smart people figuring stuff out um and as the final part of my book trying to explain there are lots of very clever people who think they've done that what's striking is that none of those ideas 
have anywhere anything like a kind of majority support. And although science isn't a voting system, in general, we kind of, when things are clear, we group around, yeah, this is, this is what, this is our current vision of the world. Right, and it's right. nothing like that at the moment in Europe. Wow. So it's, I mean, it's really unexpected that science and our sort of understanding of the human brain would at one point go further and be more advanced than the technology that's out there in the commercial world. You know, I would never have put my bet on it be going that way around. But well, yeah, we're, we're... I, I don't know if we will. I'm just saying that's, that's an option. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm just partly accepting that there are very clever people who... Uh, insist that their case that they're right uh, and i don't mm. necessarily have the means or the desire to say uh, no you're not uh, <laughs> all i can do is observe that well you haven't convinced your peers yet um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's possible that uh, some of these ideas may may turn out to be right and we will develop a new framework but what i was trying to get at in the book is simply to i mean when i was writing it my editor said so how does the brain work I said, I've no idea. <laughs> he said, you can't say that. You've got that's to have an one. answer. That's what, the, that's what the readers want, an answer. Uh, and I said, well, I can't, I can't give you one. So, you know, there are loads of books. You go out and you'll find any number of books that say the brain works in this way. And, you know, self-help books explain this, that and the other. Mm. And it's just not true. So what, partly what I was wanting to do was, apart from to tell the story of how we got to where we are, I also wanted to explain for the lay reader, the everyday reader, the kind of conversations that neuroscientists have in conferences where they go, we don't know anything, do we? And everybody goes, nope, haven't got the foggiest idea. <laughs> so I was kind of pulling back the curtain and saying, look, this is really what's going on. We don't know. And indeed, people are arguing uh, about how to interpret even quite simple bits of information. There are some people who are so one of the basic ideas that's been around for a century is that, and I've used it, I think, in talking about a sense of smell, is that neurons contain something like a code, the way they represent the outside world. Mm -hmm. And there are neuroscientists who are saying, no, that's simply not true. They're, that's our interpretation of it. They're not, it's not actually a, anything like a code in, in, in any real sense of the word. So... Um, a lot of the basic, and again, it's a metaphor. Code is another metaphor. It's not, yeah. you know, just like with yeah. the genetic code, it's not actually a code. It's simply a way that biology yeah. has found of doing things. Yeah, you can't actually like go in there and have a look and see the tea and take it out, that kind of thing, right? It's exactly like you were saying, um, the, yeah. the metaphors of the past had limits and that's why we've sort of moved on and, and had new ones. And to recognize that we'll always have um, always be so much that we don't know and then really every time we find something out we sort of realize uh, all this all this other stuff that we we don't yet know yet and start asking fresh questions right did this did writing this book um, sort of inspire any new questions for you about uh, your smell research um, well it may uh, this last point that I'm I mean, in fact, that one of the things about the book is virtually the brain book is virtually nothing about smell in it. I mean, I was, um, 
but that's interesting because smell is so closely tied with like our memory right when, when we think of like we can you know i can look at a tree and i can know that's a tree as soon as i see it but i could smell a tree and be like wait hold on yeah. Oh, it smells like outside. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 a strange. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the powers of smell is to uh, take you back to a particular mm. place. If you smell something, uh, you know, I don't know, your grandmother's cooking. You smell a smell, uh, you know, a spice that she used or something. Mm. And it's not just, oh, I remember granny used to make whatever. Mm. But you're back there. You are mm. back as, you know, that high, looking up at her in the kitchen. And it's almost like you can look around and see everything. So it's yeah. this very special kind of memory. Um, yeah, I mean, there were lots. Of, so the sm smell was one of the reasons why I didn't go into it in much detail is that it, we know a lot less about it than we do about vision. So there's a lot more about vision in the book. And that's been the main way uh, that we have concentrated on uh, understanding the brain mm. and uh, I've got a colleague I've got a book here I'll, yeah, I'll plug her book oh great uh, I've got a colleague a neuroscientist and a philosopher called Anne-Sophie uh, Barwich and mm -hmm. she's produced this book called Smellosophy what the nose tells the mind oh. and she's interested both in the neuroscience and in the philosophy of, uh, uh, of smell and so she tries to show how because we've been looking at the brain primarily through uh, visual studies, mm. we've mm. missed out a lot about how it works in the chemical senses. And I think she's, she's absolutely right. Ooh, so this yeah. is a highly recommended book, Smellosophy. Yeah, I'm totally going to pick it up. That looks so interesting. So, but I mean, really, though, we know so very, very little about why that is the case with smell yeah. and memory and 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 well do we what, know... what what we do mm. know we is i mean this goes back to what i was saying about the wiring diagram being common so when you identify any brain so whether it's a maggot brain or yours mm. you identify a smell and then basically you do two your, your brain sends the signal two ways it sends it to centers of the brain that determine well how am i going to respond to this mm -hmm. is this a smell i like is it a smell i don't like is it a smell that represents danger attraction or whatever and then you behave in an appropriate way at the same time the signal goes up into the memory processing centers so and that's the same in a maggot as it is in you so mm -hmm. there is this very close link and it seems like um your sense of sm your you, your experience is being tagged with whatever you're smelling at the time and in particular significant events may get tagged with the smell so you've got the uh you've got the the, the memory and by activating the smell you can kind of pull that memory back and it comes back into your mind in ways we don't we don't fully understand but there's this you, as you're just behaving, doing stuff. Your brain is making sense of the world and saying, I'm in this particular place. And also these are the things I'm smelling. And this is much more powerful than hearing. Yeah. Uh, we don't fully understand what's going on, but it seems that place and smell are very closely, a sense of place and a sense of smell are very closely connected. And as I said, that example of being back in your grandmother's kitchen it's not just yeah. you remember your grandmother's cooking but you are in a particular place yeah, uh, yeah. and there's this 
ability to reactivate memories uh, using smell as kind of a probe to, to make it happen. It's so fascinating how our different senses are sort of like how we intake them and deal with them all differently. Um, and, and I guess it sort of gives us a, a better range of, of ability to detect our world, right? If, if everything went into one big same processing place and was dealt with equally, then we'd be at disadvantages in other areas. So I'm sure there was some, um, there is an amazing evolutionary purpose for why you know, it, it, each pot has a, each sense goes to a different pot. And I mean, cause as you were saying with hearing, you can sort of recite the lyrics to a song without having to think about it. A song that you heard like 10 years ago without having to think about it um, almost perfectly for many of us. And yet, you know, try do that with a book that you read and that's never gonna happen, yeah, you know? We might be able to do it with the poems. So it's partly to do with the rhythm, the rhythm. Uh, of, of, of how it's constructed. Um, mm. But unless you've learnt, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and I can't remember how it goes after that, I mean, that's the <laughs> opening to Tale of Two Cities, mm -hmm. uh, you may know the opening sentence, but you know, uh, you don't know much after that, unless you've really sat down and learned it. I, I don't know if you know this, but as someone who's, you know, been obviously very interested in the brain and, and, and how we learned about it, when, when they show up on... Um, uh, you know, when they try to display how different parts of the brain respond to different things and it shows it lighting up, obviously it's not actually lighting up, but what is that, what are they detecting in these, in MRIs and things like that? What, how are they detecting, what is this activity that they're, that um, It's see? the amount of blood, it's the amount of, it's the blood oxygen level detection, it's called BOLD, bold. Oh. So all it's saying is that the cells in this particular part of the brain are doing something we don't know what they're doing but they're doing something they've got more there's more oxygen flowing to that particular part of the brain so it's not actually telling you what the cells are doing it's telling you what the blood vessels around them are doing the the oxygen they're they're transporting so i mean there's a big argument um Neuroscientists, I mean, so people who work on, on fMRI, these are the, the, the scans that you, yeah, you see people's brain lighting up when they're thinking of playing table tennis or something like that. <laughs> yeah, okay. so the, the, the people who work in this area are very convinced by it. Uh, I think many neuroscientists, and I gave some examples in the book, are pretty doubtful, partly because, I mean, you know, I, I study single neurons. Mm-hmm. Now, each of those, each of those, the smallest square in one of those images has over five million neurons. <laughs> and we don't know what they're doing. We just know yeah. they're doing something. So yeah. I can tell you, well, my neuron is activated. It's inhibited. It's got this particular shape. Whereas in an fMRI, all I can say is, well, that's, that's, there's something happening there. That's it. <laughs> is this where this idea... So there's been a lot of argument about this. Mm. Sorry, yeah. Uh, just that... Um, is this where the idea of different parts of the brain handling different things, like our memory sits over here and, you know, our, our um, emotional response sits over here. Is that where that um, sort of... Uh, well, it goes... That, that, goes back, that. that goes back centuries. That idea yeah, goes yeah. back centuries. Yeah. There's something that's called phrenology, 
which was the idea that you could uh, feel the shape of the brain through the skull, mm -hmm. which of course you can't because the skull's quite thick. <laughs> but by feeling different lumps, you'd be able to see, detect different organs in the brain and that different organs did different things. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, phrenology was widely accepted. Uh, Karl Marx believed in it. Uh, Queen Victoria believed in it. So that just gives you an indication of the, the difference in political views. And you could still think that this was interesting. Um, virtually every intellectual in Europe and America in the 19th century accepted this. Mm. Uh, if you read Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, the first time that Holmes meets Moriarty, Moriarty makes a very rude comment about the shape of his head uh, because he was saying, well, this shows you're stupid. <laughs> so the idea that different bits of your brain do different things goes back to this idea. And it's that, that phrenology is nonsense because you can't tell anything from the shape of your head. Mm. Mm. Um, we do know that, for example, uh, as I said earlier on, this part of the brain here, which I'm using now, is involved in speech production. So if I, have a, mm -hmm. if I damage this area, I won't be able to speak. If I have a stroke, mm -hmm. for example, it will damage my... my so there is localization of... It's not language perception, because that's somewhere else, partly, but it's production of speech. So it's a mixture of uh, muscular control and then weird things that we couldn't actually define very easily about desire to speak and all the rest of it but that's con that that that's there yeah so there is a sort of uh they're right in a sense that there are groupings of there's groupings of activity and we know that because of it being taken away but these areas are also deeply connected mm. so increasingly researchers are interested in the interconnections between these areas so even something like vision which is processed primarily at the back of your head and if you damage that you can't see properly but the cells there are also responding to auditory stimulation and even my smell cells we discovered in the last few years my mm -hmm. smell cells which are dangling down their activity is altered by influences from other parts of the brain from other regions so it's it's not again it's why the brain isn't a computer it's not like you've got an input going to a processing area mm -hmm. and then it gets sent on. That input is altered and nuanced by context. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. Oh, it's so amazing. So there is localization of function, mm. but there is also, it's also distributed. And that mm -hmm. localization, the closer you look at it, is very blurred. Mm -hmm. It's incredible that you uh, have this great knowledge and, you know, this drive to write um, history of science books as well as you're, as you're studying. You're a bit of a polymath, I guess, in, the, in that, right? Um, it's, it, yeah. W what's next for you? What, are, are you? Have you got an idea about what might take your fancy next? Oh, yeah. I'm uh, about three quarters through uh, a book about, uh, it's a social history of genetic engineering. So of our attempts Ooh. to manipulate uh other organisms and Ooh. so it's as much about how that's been seen uh by society and the fears that have been generated mm -hmm. uh, as it is about actually how scientists have gone about and done that and mm -hmm. then uh, companies have tried to apply that so 
this was partly motivated uh, by the fact that there's a, a technology called gene drives, which is a way of uh, changing a gene, say in a mosquito, and that gene would then multiply itself such that if you were to release it, it would go through the population very, very quickly. So we have the potential to manipulate ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I find that very frightening. So I'm very frightened by that. But this, mm. I also know that when people first developed uh, the ability to manipulate microbes, people were terrified by that as well, 50 years ago. There was huge worry. The scientific was, community was so terrified of what it was doing that they organized um, uh, a cessation of research. They said, right, nobody's going to do any research for the next year while we work out how to make it safe. And all those fears turned out to be fears, fantasies. Not, n there wasn't any danger. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to try and work out whether my fears about gene drives are justified or whether I'm simply repeating these kind of deep-seated cultural fears that have repeated themselves over the decades. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, people are comparing it to vaccines, right? Um, people, you know, saying that there was a big fear about vaccines, obviously there still is um, for some people, but I think what you mentioned earlier, the differences, um, and there is a Netflix series that just handles this so well. I, I'm sure you've seen it. What What are they, is it Coded or something like that? I think it is, um, that handles this so, so well. Cool, but yeah. yeah. Um, but it's the, the, the wider ecosystem effect, right? As you said, it's it's the fact that once you put it out there, it's uh, it starts to have a ripple effect with other species and, and who really knows, who knows how far it goes. That's the fear, right? Yeah, but as I say, that's exactly what terrified people in the 1970s. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wary of my responses, but the mm. only way I can work that out, and I don't know what the answer is because I haven't got to that bit yet. <laughs> the only way I can work this out is by going through it. I mean, it's the same thing with GMOs. You know, people are very worried by GMOs. Mm. There is evidence that uh, some of these, uh, the characters that we put into crops are getting into uh, local races of, of plant in particular in Mexico. This is the case with, uh, with maize in, in Mexico. Mm. Um, how problematic that is is another matter. I'm not worried about eating GM crops. I don't think there's any danger about that. Mm. Um, but there is th this potential for ec unexpected ecological consequences uh, that we need to be wary of. So yeah. that's partly what interested me was this, this continual fear, which moves its target. As the target changes, the fear comes with it. And yeah. I wanted to yeah. try and get to where that was coming from, whether it was rational or whether there was something deeper in people's psyche and including mine. Mm. Uh, but as I say, I don't know what the answer is yet. <laughs> Well, I'll come back to you maybe in like a, a year or so when you've finished and we can yeah, have that, another chat about that. will uh, be out in spring 2022. So we've got a while to go. I've got about yeah. six months to finish it. You've got, you've got time to figure out what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not... I, 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 I guess it's, it's human nature to be um, afraid of the unknown, particularly when it's not in your hands, right? We, you know, we can vote and we can try and influence policy, but at the end of the day, for a lot of people, it's... It's a decision being made by a small group of people for a very large group of people. Yeah. And 
the more we become globalized and trade with each other and um, you know travel around and as COVID has shown us we are we are all one and the same uh, interconnected these decisions become much more um, vital for all of us so yeah very interesting great topic you this uh, yeah I'll be very interested to talk to you again um, then. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Um, I'll have it to come back and talk in 18 months. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll, I'll send you another email. Um, yeah, awesome. Okay, Thank no, you so bye much. Bye. That was part two with Matthew Cobb, where we focused on the histories of science. In part one, we focused on his research in the sense of smell, which was available last week. And you should check out now on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this now. Don't forget to rate and review this episode if you found it valuable. And you can also support me with caffeine to keep them coming through my Buy Me A Coffee link. A lot of people have reported that previously nice smells now smell like petrol or, or something weird. Or that they may be able to they smell things that they can't name. You've got about four million smell cells in your nose. So if you imagine that a smell is a bit like a, playing a chord on a piano, got a lovely C major chord, wrong. And then if you imagine now one of the keys doesn't work or you've connected it to a completely different note, when that chord comes along, wrong, it now makes a discordant, unpleasant, perhaps a sound that you've never heard before. And so that's the kind of thing that's happening in your nose when you get damage to it either by physical damage or by disease. Which is available on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.